Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to the Murderosity Podcast. My name is Bob Hancock, and I am joined by Rebel Roan, our our host for the evening. Rebel, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Ah, excited to kick this off. This is going to be our pilot episode, season one, episode one of many, many to come. So what case are we going to be diving into today? Today, we're going to be looking at the case of Peter and Joan Porco. It started in 2004, and Peter and Joan had been married for 30 years. They had two sons. They had Jonathan, who was a naval officer, and Christopher, who he was a student at the University of Rochester. Now, this would be Rochester, New York. Is that correct? It is. So they actually lived in Del Mar, New York. Peter was in, uh, he worked at the Appellate Court, and Joan was a speech pathologist there. So I kind of find it a little bit ironic, um, you mentioning that he works at the Appellate Court. His actual job was to do research over people appealing their sentences. Not to jump ahead too much, but I think that will become a very uh, ironic point moving forward. Yeah, I agree. It's definitely interesting fact there. And so Joan was a speech pathologist. They assess and treat and help prevent communication and swallowing disorders in adults and kids. Sometimes that can be speech disorders like stuttering um, or autism-related disorders. We actually, uh, delving into, into my past a little bit with that, I had a guy that I served with that suffered a pretty traumatic brain injury, and he had to relearn how to speak and whatnot. And he said that was actually a very, very uh, big part of why he was able to, you know, start communicating again, more or less, you know, as an adult, learning how to speak again, like a child. Yeah, now he's back to full capacity. But so wow. what she's what she's doing, I feel is it's it's a beautiful thing anytime that you're offering yourself up to help other people. Yeah, that's, that's a big one. What's the strangest job you've ever had? So I don't know if it's necessarily a strange job per se, but the job title does raise some eyebrows. So after I got out of the Army, I went to Wyotech for automotive and diesel mechanics. And after I graduated, I was hired by an oil exploration company to be a vibrator technician. <laughs> um, so it's uh, obviously it sounds really, really humorous and funny. And in a way, it, it, it kind of is. What vibrators in this case are, are these massive machines that we drive around and they put a little pad on the ground and they send seismic waves and vibrations through the earth. And uh, we send that information back to the geologists and they can look at the squiggly lines and see if there's oil or gas or gold or water. And I was a mechanic for these vehicles. And uh, it was a lot of hard work. We'd be out in the fields for like six weeks at a time working 12 to 15 hour days and then we'd be back home for two weeks completely off but it was it was very very hard work but i did get to see a lot and i got to go to alaska and see all over the continental lower 48 so it was it was rewarding again i don't know how weird the job itself is but i definitely got eyebrows raised at the bars when i said i was a vibrator technician so oh um, i bet so how about you? What's the weirdest or most interesting job that you've ever done? I think the weirdest, it's not even really that weird. I was an interior painter for about two weeks and I got hired. I worked at a grocery store and a guy came in and said, hey, do you want a job? And I said, yes. And so I spent about two weeks inside of freezing cold houses uh, that had, it was the middle of winter. So they hadn't been, they hadn't had electricity hooked up or anything yet. And I spent two weeks doing interior painting and they didn't even pay me. No payment for that. No, at the end of the two weeks, uh, that's why I quit was because they kept 
just giving me excuse after excuse for why I had not been paid. And so I finally just went back to my job at the grocery store and that was that. But it was just a very weird experience. Now, was this in Wyoming or? It was. Yeah. Yeah. So for those who don't know, um, Bob and I are from Wyoming originally. We don't live there now. But yeah, it was when we lived in Wyoming. So those winters were definitely freezing cold. To piggyback off that, you remember how I said I had been to Alaska. We were working north of the Arctic Circle. I was living in Laramie, Wyoming at the time. And when I came home from my vacation, it was colder in Wyoming than it was (laughs) north of the Arctic Circle. Some people find that hard to believe, but that is hand to God, swear whatever you need me to do. It was colder in Wyoming than in Alaska, north of the Arctic Circle. Yeah, I believe Uh, it. Wyoming winters get cold. So listening to you uh, talk about having to paint in houses where the heat wasn't on yet, I, I, I had a cold shiver just remembering how that was. Yeah, I don't miss the wind and the cold and the everything that is a Wyoming winter. You know, The only people that miss Wyoming are the people that still live there. That's true. Uh, I find almost every Wyomingite that I've run into, and you're like, so are you planning on moving back? And they, like, you almost see panic. Nope. So. Yes, the answer is no, I will never go back. I will go back to visit, but I will not go to live there. And I will only it, go in the summertime because I do not want to deal with the cold. It's it's great to visit. The Rockies are beautiful. The fishing is great. Yes. The people are scarce. But, yep, I'm I'm in the same boat. A visit's fine. No more than a week. And then I, I, I want to get back. So Yeah. And you living in Germany now, how often do you get back to the States? I have not been back since 2017. It's truly I just kind of found my place. But... You know, my parents were were German, so fitting in here really wasn't as hard as it could have been for other people. And I was stationed over here at one point. Actually, I lived in the next town over from where I am now. Uh, oh, I was wow. living in Nuremberg at the time. And yeah, it's I just I, I, I fit in here really, really well. And it matches my lifestyle and my my pace. So while That's I don't weird. get back to the States very often, I do keep in contact with a lot of my friends. So. Thank God for technology. Speaking yes, of which, right now we're getting to record across continents. So yeah, uh, that's pretty this interesting. Is awesome. Yeah. All right. So getting back into this story here, the morning of November fifteenth, two thousand four, Peter did not show up to work and he hadn't called since there was it was so out of character for him that the that the police were called in order to do a welfare check. And when they arrived, they discovered a terrible, terrible scene of a brutal attack. They found Peter just inside the front door in a pool of blood. He had sustained massive head wounds. There was blood all over the place, on the floors, the walls, up the stairs, and even on the outside of the front door. What What really fascinates me about that is how he how the blood got everywhere that it did. I'm sure you're going to touch on this more, but the way that brain injuries work, it's it's so crazy how it was almost like he he forgot that he had been attacked and just went around went went through his morning routine. And then collapsed from blood loss rather than from anything else. Right. And that's exactly what happened. We'll get into that here in a little in a little bit. But yeah, he had had such a massive brain injury that he had gotten up and just moved around like it was his normal day. The police actually started to clear the house. They moved through and they made a second discovery in the master bedroom. Joan was still in bed. She also had massive head wounds. But she was still alive and actually conscious, despite a portion of her brain being exposed. So when the paramedics were loading her up, the detective, his name was Christopher Bowden, began asking her questions. He asked if her son, Jonathan, was the culprit. 
and she shook her head no. But when he asked if it was her younger son, Christopher, she nodded. And paramedics would later testify that they witnessed the exchange of this conversation. Now, I find this absolutely fascinating that the police would would think that someone with their brain exposed would be in a state of mind to give expert witness testimony. I, yeah, I, I, think, I, I don't know. It just it seems like an interesting. Um, I, I, is that what they teach at the academy or uh, <laughs> I don't yeah. know how often that comes up? Yeah, that's such a strange thing to I know that they want to get in there first to get as much information as they can. But with such a traumatic brain injury, it would just be impossible to really even have a conversation with her. She had facial injuries and things like that. So she's not having a conversation. She's just nodding yes or no. But in that state, it's really impossible, you would think, to to be able to tell whether or not somebody who had attacked you or to remember it. Because a lot of people don't remember those events after they happen. Exactly. The brain goes into more or less survival mode. And I mean, how many things that have we blocked out from childhood or young adulthood or even adulthood that things are just so traumatic that your brain will not allow you to process this information until it's forced to. And in this case, such a violent attack, I can only imagine, you know, what she must have been going through. And again, everybody deals with trauma and violence and what not differently. So I don't presume to know what she went through, but I could definitely see this being such a traumatic event that her brain just shut it out and would not allow her to process it at that time. Right. So they rushed her to the hospital, gave her emergency surgery, and she was placed in a medically induced coma. The chances were really slim that she would even survive, but she she did end up um, surviving in the end of it. And we'll get back to that here at the end here. But Once she was in the hospital and police were able to begin processing the scene, they found uh, several different things. They found that the home's alarm had been smashed and the phone line was cut. One of the screens on the outside had been slashed, but there was nothing missing. Their wallets were still untouched and Joan was still even wearing jewelry. None of the electronics were taken, so it didn't appear to be a break-in. This wasn't one of those burglaries gone bad no, and it didn't, it, yeah, it didn't, it, it looks like they maybe started to set it up like that, but didn't complete, they didn't do anything to make it seem like that. Seems, uh, seems like if they were trying to, that was definitely a, a botched job. Yes, definitely. Uh, now, something that I had read that was a bit interesting on, on the, the alarm system that they had at their home, Peter would often take the dog out in the middle of the night because... It's a dog and it needs to go when it needs to go. But apparently he was he was well known in his family for not rearming the alarm system afterwards. The the reason that uh, we come to know that is the alarm systems company kept records of 15 days out from when the uh, the incident occurred. And when the police went through that, there were several discrepancies on that. And Joan was actually able to clear that up for them. Just a. Just a little side note there. So perhaps the alarm wasn't even necessary at that time. Yeah, yeah, it's, that's interesting. They also found in the house that there was a fireman's axe that had been left in the bedroom, it, which it had belonged to the Porco. So it wasn't something that somebody brought. It was something that was already there. And forensics was able to figure out why there was blood smeared everywhere. And it was it was from Peter. His injuries were so severe that he would been operating on muscle memory 
and he was just doing his morning routine. He'd gotten out of bed, got ready for work. He used the bathroom. I uh, started coffee in the kitchen, prepared his lunch, and even began unloading the dishwasher. He, when he stepped outside to grab the morning newspaper, he actually locked himself out when the door closed behind him. And in even in his you know traumatic brain injury point, was able to get the spare key and let himself back inside before he collapsed. That's again, it's so amazing to me. The human mind is an incredible machine. But how often have you, for example, you wake up a bit groggy and before you know it, you're at work and you're like, I don't remember driving here. I don't remember. I do that all the time. Half of the things that you do. Yeah, because it's just muscle memory. Like your your mind takes over when your body doesn't want to. And uh, I mean, this is obviously an extreme case. But I think that we can all have some understanding of this moment where, you know, he's just going through the motions without without any conscious thought to it, obviously. Right. Or he would have made a phone call, you know, 911, cried out something. But Yeah, and neighbors didn't report hearing anything or seeing anything. So it was not, you know, he didn't try to go for help or anything like that. He was just going along with the flow of things. Now, you mentioned that this fireman's axe was something that the Porcos owned. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm not going to be judgy at all on this. However, do you have any crazy items like that just randomly hanging around in your house at any point in time? Yeah, I I have a sword that's shaped like a lightning bolt. Okay, well, the 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 nerd and and the geek both in me are 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 screaming out (laughs) awesomeness for that. Right. I don't have it but, anymore, but I had an entrenching tool from the army that's kind of similar that I, I would always take with me on camping and hiking trips that most people just thought it was kind of crazy that I would have liberated this piece of equipment. But yeah, it's 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 kind of crazy. Is who, who would think, you know, what I could use today to hang above my door is a fireman's axe. Right, right. That's kind of one of those things. They're not, you know, they're it's not something that everybody has. Right. It's it's not like your normal wood chopping axe or I mean, th- this is a very specific tool for a specific right. job. So for people who don't work those specific jobs. And I, I did try to look into it to see if there was maybe a story behind it. You know, a, a fireman gave it to, you know, one of the family members or something. I, I couldn't find anything, but I find it fascinating. So definitely. Yeah. So they had a few suspects initially, which included their son, Christopher. They thought maybe it was an unhappy litigant, but the guy that they thought had a solid alibi. And then uh, Peter's great uncle, Frank, he had ties to the mob and was known as the fireman, but he was in jail, which I find interesting that his nickname was the fireman when it was a fire axe or a fireman's axe. We we were we are of one mind on that. I uh... (laughs) That, that was my original thought was as to, is this how this came about, him owning this? But again, there's not a whole lot of information on the firemen out there. But I suppose that's to be expected. The mob does tend to keep things a bit quiet. And we at the show die. respect that. Please don't don't send anyone. <laughs> yeah, we don't we don't need any visitors. It's fine. So you were mentioning the, the suspects. Did any of them really leap out at the police? Just the son, Christopher, partly because Joan had already nodded her head that he had been the one that attacked them. I'm not sure why they had initially asked about the sons immediately, but it seems that the detective asked about them as soon as they got there. I'm not sure if he maybe knew them already or how that came about. Well, now, Christopher did have a record. 
previously. He had a he he had burglarized his parents' home at some point in 2003, in fact, and he had stolen things from them, like a laptop that he tried to sell on eBay. He he also did a lot of really scammy things on eBay at the time because eBay was new. So what he would do is he would sell an item, get the money, and then pretend that the person selling the item had passed away. And so it was very hard for people to recoup their money or to get the item. And so he, he was he was known to the police. So that one didn't surprise me so much as asking whether or not Jonathan, who was the first one they asked about. Is, right. And this he is was a in tale the military. of two brothers. Yeah, he was right. he was a he was a naval officer and as far as anything I've read or seen about him, he was a very stand-up guy. Perhaps it was because, you know, people have a preconceived idea that members of the military are violent because of the type of job that we are required to do, which might have played into it, but as far as a tale of these two brothers, like you can't find more night right. and day. Um, than these two, in my humblest of opinions. But I, I, I don't. I also, though, I don't know if the police really would have even had time to look if one of them had a criminal background by that time either. So right. And Christopher supposedly found out about the attacks when a newspaper reporter contacted him about it. So that was his first indication that the police knew was that he didn't even hear from the police first. He heard from the news media. Which I would like to say I am shocked and surprised by this turn of events, but that, <laughs> that kind of does almost seem par for the course. What was also interesting, I found, was when they did contact Christopher, and I have listened to the interviews and the phone recordings of it, there's very, very little emotion, which is not necessarily a giveaway because, again, people process trauma differently. But for me, when you listen to his voice and he finds out his mother's still alive, it takes a while for him to even ask, hey, where can I see her? Where's she at? He does sound a little bit surprised that she's still, you know, amongst the living, but that could just be my preconception going in. So definitely would recommend if you if, if you get a chance to listen to some of those uh, you guys out there. It uh, It's definitely a good addition to, to, to put things into perspective. Definitely. And it really goes to show just, I mean, he was 21 when the attack took place. So, I mean, I understand everybody handles things differently, but just to have no emotion. And that's part of the reason that the police suspected him early on was just his reaction was so nonchalant that he didn't even ask what happened or how they were attacked or anything like that. He, he raised a lot of red flags. I mean, he, he, he did. did himself no favors whatsoever. And I mean, you can't really, I suppose, expect a 21-year-old to be some mastermind. But this was no. a, a, a true, even, even if he was innocent, this is a master class in what not to do. To, yes. To plead your case. Yes. And they, they found out more about Christopher the more they investigated him. They found out that he lied to his friends about his family's wealth. He always had excuses, though, why he couldn't back up his claims that they had like real estate holdings and vacation homes and things like that. So his friends kind of knew that he was a liar as well, but they must have just kind of taken it at face value or, you know, accepted him for whoever he was or whoever he was pretending to be. Well, I mean, we all had that friend right like yeah we had that friend in high school who oh yeah I'm, she goes to a di the girl i'm dating goes to a different school or you know <laughs> this isn't our actual house that we normally stay in but it's being renovated for eight years I, right 
And we do keep that friend on because I think maybe in a way we kind of sympathize for them, like there's a reason they are. But sometimes people are just pathological liars. And so, again, I think this is something that we can all kind of relate to. Like we all had that friend. Right. We've we've all known or at least known somebody or worked with somebody that is strikingly similar. Right. Yeah. And he he lied about his schooling. He didn't have good grades. He was in Europe and his parents found out that he wasn't passing his classes. And then he ended up forging his grades from another college in order to return to the University of Rochester because he had been kicked out for his grades. He lied to his parents about the tuition and told them that it would be covered because school made an error. But he'd spent so much money from his parents or his school tuition, I mean, in he spent the original $17,000 of tuition money to finance a Jeep and yeah. forged his dad's name on, le- on loan documents and on credit. His dad found out about them too. And his dad, you know, his dad didn't even really, there was no consequences for those actions. His dad just told him that if he did it again, he would turn him into the police. And it's, we're going to get to this a bit later when we discuss the crime itself. But this this Jeep Wrangler that he got a hold of, it's very noticeable. It is a very, you can't miss it type vehicle. It was huge. He had it raised up. He had the large mudding tires put on it. And it was a bright, bright yellow Jeep Wrangler. So keep that in mind moving forward. His His father finding out multiple times that his son had forged his signature, gotten cosigns and whatnot. This is a theme with this kid moving forward. He he does it several times and his his parents to their credit did try to not ruin his life for this cuz he's 21. 21-year-olds do stupid stuff. He was he did tell him not to do it again. And the ironic thing about this is it was one week to the day before the murders. Right. Yeah, which made him even more suspicious because he had he had motive at that point. And it was all by email. So there was definitely a paper trail that the police could easily follow through. Right. It. It, the, the thing is, is at the end of that email, his father says, we may be disappointed with you, but your mother and I still love you and care about your future. Yeah, I, they still cared at the end of everything. And he was still welcome back to their home. And they just wanted him to do better. He, he he stood to lose really nothing. Like the loans had already been put out. Everything was already there. It was just moving forward that there was a, an expectation that was placed upon him. Right. I, I mean, you, you see a guy that he's he's lying to his parents. He's lying to his best friends. He's, he's lying to himself. And ultimately he also lied to the university of Rochester because to get reinstated, he forged his grades from the community college where he was also failing. I, I do wonder how he pulled that off though, is when I went through school, it was very, maybe it's because everything's digitized now and you have to, you have to get sealed copies. But even when I was in the army and people would use civilian education, they had to get sealed envelopes from their colleges sent to wherever they were stationed just right. to, just to prevent that. Yeah. And I, that's probably a big reason, you know, this exactly is a big reason why is because, you know, it back then it may have been a little bit easier to forge and to create something that looked legitimate, but I don't know why, but they accepted them back on it. Well, I could have gone to a much nicer college if I had just, uh, Right, same. <laughs> if I had just done one or two, not studying, just just learning how to do that. 
Yeah, who needs studying when you can just forge documents? Oh, so, so nice. So what happens next? What what do the police uh, figure out with their sniffing into his, his past and nefarious actions? So they did end up arresting him in July of 2006. His alibi had been that he'd been at the school sleeping and didn't know about the crimes until he had got the until he had received the phone call from the reporter. But the police theorized that he drove three hours to his parents' home, attacked them, and then returned to school before anyone realized he left. And this is kind of where we get into coming back to the Jeep. They showed on surveillance videos, they showed a yellow Jeep leaving at 1030 on the 14th and returning at 830 on the 15th. So 1030 at night, 830 in the morning. He had the time available and the surveillance showed that he had left or that he had left the campus and returned to the campus. They also had, so he also used tollways to get to his parents' house. And some of the tollway collectors remembered a Jeep that matched that description as well. And the police actually did pull the tickets because what happens is you, you drive through these tolls and you get a ticket at the first one. And when you exit, you give the ticket back into a box and you pay for however long you drove. So what they what they did, and this was kind of really, really cool, they pulled all the tickets from that evening and they ran a DNA test on them because the people that hand out the tickets wear gloves. So no one's DNA except the driver's DNA will be on these things. Now, they didn't get a lot, but what they did get was mitochondrial DNA, which did match Christopher. So it puts him going to to his uh, his parents house or in that area at the time rather than you know him sleeping on a sofa right and it didn't even make sense that he used the the cash only lane because he had a fast pass transmitter so he would have been able to go through the fast pass and not have to provide a ticket up front but it could also be tracked which yep so but either it, way it, again, he's got the, tracked the, so the best laid plans of mice and men off do go awry and this is a perfect example of that the way that they can find DNA evidence nowadays is is it's crazy. And again, oh, it's yeah. not mitochondrial DNA is not the same as finding, you know, a proof positive saliva sample or or something along those lines. But it is close enough to match him. There was out of the entire state of New York, there was only 0.04% of people that had this particular mitochondrial disfigurement, I guess is the way the best way to put it. It wasn't normal. And mm-hmm. Christopher fit into that. So he's one of 76,000 people that fit into this. So again, it doesn't it doesn't mean it's him, but it it's, mean it's not him. It, yeah, it's really, really pointing in the direction of it probably is. It's enough that the police can definitely work with that type of information. Right. And they didn't find any blood in his vehicle. They didn't find bloody clothes and there was no fingerprints on the axe. But there was just enough circumstantial evidence that it pointed to him. The frat brothers that were at the frat house said that he wasn't asleep in the dorm lounge. And then a neighbor said that he saw the yellow, the bright yellow Jeep in the Porco's driveway. Now, the lack of blood, to touch on that a little bit, Chris did have a job at that time. He was working for a local veterinarian in the area of the Rochester College. And one of his duties was actually to clean and sterilize the operating rooms of of blood. So he did have intimate knowledge of how to get rid of that type of evidence. Also, this was his childhood home. 
So he probably had clothing there, very easy to change out of, and then you know dispose of his the clothes that he wore to to commit the crime if that's what he actually did. So the police did have a lot to work with, and he did himself no favors. No, no, he was definitely not a criminal mastermind by any means. So Joan survived the attack. She woke up from the coma, but she couldn't remember anything that had to do with the attack. So that means she didn't remember talking to paramedics. She didn't remember saying yes, that he had attacked her or anything like that. She was permanently disfigured. She ended up losing a portion of her skull and her left eye, and it left her face just totally disfigured. Yeah, that's that's what hadn't, what what is unfortunate with well, maybe not unfortunate, because as we mentioned before, the state of mind she was in personally, I don't believe that she should have been interviewed by the police at that time, or at least nothing that she said should have been taken. You know, it should have been taken with a grain of salt. And the judge did agree with that while he allowed the paramedics to say that she had done this. She had nodded or shaken her head. He didn't allow her actual accusation to be used in court. It's right. it's one of those gray areas there where, yes, this person can say they heard you say this, but what you said isn't what you meant. He right. kind of let the jury figure out what they wanted to do with it from there. Yes. And she stood by his side during court and trial the whole way in support of him. Yeah, they were seen walking arm in arm into the courthouse almost daily, though. he Another uh, interesting fact with that that yellow Jeep, he actually almost got a reckless driving ticket in the parking lot of the courthouse because he would speed in and spin out and the court security had finally had enough of it. And they said, if you do it again, we're going to ticket you on this. Like he's just showing this blatant disregard and, and just not taking the situation seriously. Yeah. Just extremely callous. I, I think it goes back to what you said earlier about how there were, there were no consequences when he had done these other things. I truly believe he thought he had nothing to worry about. So Right. And I can't even fathom just being so blatantly oblivious to the fact that this is such a serious situation and to be spinning out in the court parking lot. That's absolutely, and, absolutely crazy. Now this so, this is reflected though also like his 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 brother seemed to also be very cold towards him. Jonathan didn't seem to be a a huge Chris fan either. Well, no, especially because when he was doing his eBay bit, he was saying that it was his brother that had died. And so people, people had contacted him and asked about, you know, they, they found out that it was a lie and Jonathan found out about it. And he was really concerned with having legal issues since he was a naval officer. He tried to call his brother more than 40 times and he never even called him back. That's uh, that that's that sibling love right there. So, (laughs) right. (laughs) Yeah. So I wouldn't I wouldn't be a big fan of my sibling either if they were telling people I was dead and scamming them on the Internet. Well, hopefully we won't uh, we won't have to worry about such things. But uh, yeah. Yeah. If my sister listens to this, then please don't tell people I'm dead unless I'm actually dead. uh, Same. Same, sis. Don't don't do this. (laughs) Call me. We'll talk it out. Yes. Yeah. So even though there was no direct evidence that proved that he had actually committed the crimes, he went to court and they found him guilty of second degree murder and attempted murder. So the uh, I guess the the fascinating thing about that, the the jury itself seemed to have less than no doubt. Well, obviously, if you get a, a guilty conviction. But in this case, the way that they weighed it, his brother not being uh, his brother being very icy towards him. 
and a lot of it being just Chris's demeanor himself. Chris seems to have put himself into the situation far more than than anything else. Yeah, it 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 did not take long. It was it was the same day they deliberated on August 10th, 2006, and by that evening they had declared him guilty on both counts. It was kind of pretty open and shut, though Chris Porco still swears by his innocence. Right, yeah. And he was, I mean, he was sentenced 50 years to life on each count with a minimum of 50 years in prison. And he didn't even show a reaction when the verdict was right. He was completely stone-faced. Now, he won't be up for parole until 2052. Doing my math, he's a bit older than me. So, yeah, he's going to be old when he gets <laughs> out, if he gets out. That said, his his case has garnered some interest. And I watched a couple of private interviews where people have written to him and tried to get information from him. And he is absolutely not remorseful at all. There's no, there's no care. There's no even being sorry that this happened to his parents. There, there's nothing there. He has appealed several times, both to the appellate division, the third department, the New York Court of Appeals, and to the Supreme Court. They've all declined it. The Supreme Court didn't even give opinion on it. But as early as January of this year, he has filed another uh, appeal saying that his counsel was incompetent because they lost a piece of paper that would have proved his alibi. What paper was that that they that he's saying that they lost? That's all he says is uh, he says that he claimed to have filed a motion for ineffective counsel, citing a misplaced paper that he claims would prove his mm-hmm. alibi. The status of that is unknown. However, that information came to light in a 2023 interview that he gave to John Gray of WTEN. John Gray interviewed him in the Clinton Correctional Facility itself. The air date was back in January, and he says that he's filed this motion. I've been trying to dig it up to find out exactly what this paper could be, so I'm not seeing it. And there's nothing official that you can find about this motion being filed. So given his reputation for honesty, I almost wonder if he's actually filed this or if he's just talking. Something he filed, yeah. So yeah, he's, I, I try not to again, I try not to place too much faith into you know a guilty, not guilty verdict because there's so many things that can influence. There are false confessions. There are vengeful jury members that there, there, there's a litany of things. You know, if if the police zone in on a suspect, they make the crime fit the suspect instead of the suspect fitting the crime. Mm-hmm. But to me, in this case, there's just there is an overwhelming abundance of evidence. And to be honest, the the length of time that it takes from for him to get from college to home to do the crime and drive back. I think he's pretty lucky that he got second degree murder instead of capital murder, um, which carries a much harsher penalty. I know New York's a little bit more lenient on that, but first degree murder would have carried a much stiffer penalty and they really could have tried to nail him for it, I feel. Yeah. So again, my personal opinion, we don't have a criminal mastermind this week, but... We do have one of the most interesting familial dynamics, I think, that I've read about for quite some time. And really, it just goes to show like how how different people coming from the same environment two successful parents, you know, not as rich as he wished them to be, obviously, but two successful parents. What seems to be a loving home. One man turns out to be a, a naval officer. The other one turns out to be a murderer. I <laughs> Where 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 do you uh, where do we find the defining moment that that sent one over the edge? 
I, right. I, and they're so different from each other that it's just, it's crazy to me that that one could be such an upstanding citizen and the other one could commit such a crime. There's nothing but fascination for me in this case. And again, his total lack of empathy and remorse is is crazy. But his mother stands by him. Uh, his brother does not. So all we can do is hope that the jury got this one right. And personally, I, I think that they probably did. So I agree. Where'd, where did you first hear of this case, since you're the one that brought this one up in the first place? So I actually saw this case as an episode of Forensic Files. I am obsessed with Forensic Files, and I watched their older episodes. And it first aired in 2009, so it was still only a few years past when it happened, but that's where I first heard about it. Wow, that's that's investigative discovery as i recall i think is the the channel that would have been on yeah really good show forensic files also enjoy it very much apparently uh they they did make a movie out of it on lifetime oh i have not seen it but it's called romeo killer the chris porco story and porco himself actually sued in an attempt to block the release of the movie oh wow but if any network was going to romanticize the crime i think lifetime's just about as good as he could have hoped for yeah so that's not gonna be on my watch list (laughs) i think i'll skip that one too the uh, the only time i watch lifetime is for their christmas movies to keep me warm and happy but uh, i'm into that (laughs) all right all right well i did find so for this week um what we want to do is we want to start highlighting a missing persons case so i did have sorry i didn't send this to you earlier i was going to and then i got sidetracked that's absolutely okay. I will be as excited as our audience hearing about this for the first time now. All right. So I found a missing persons case for Sequoia Cooper. She is a transgender woman. She was last seen leaving her residence in the north side of Columbus, Ohio at about 1130 p.m. on August 31st, 2021. She was on her way to go to the corner store, but nobody knows if she even made it to the corner store and she never returned home. So um, there's not a lot known about her case at the time that she went missing. They She was driving a black 2009 Ford Fusion, and they did find that on the west side of Columbus. She was reported missing to the Columbus Division of Police on September 1st. So she was missing for a few hours before or a day before they reported her missing, and she appears to be the victim of foul play. That's that's terribly unfortunate. What we'd like to have happen with these missing person cases is if somebody out there knows anything or can find something and prevent it from turning into a murder or or you know something worse than just a missing person's case you know please don't hesitate to to go to the authorities with any information you have no matter how small it might be you don't know how important it could be yes so So if you have information relating to the disappearance of sequoia cooper the FBI has asked that you call Central Ohio Crime Stoppers tip line, and that number is 614-461-8477. You can also contact your local FBI office and probably your local police department as well if you don't live in the area. I think that's excellent. That's uh, Also with Crime Stoppers, if you don't feel comfortable giving your name, Crime Stoppers always takes tips anonymously, but please don't hesitate to reach out. You never know what small bit of information could drastically change someone's life exactly well i think that concludes our episode for this week well excellent thank you rebel i have truly truly enjoyed this learned a lot and i hope that our audience has been entertained and learned a bit as well 
Yeah. And if you have any suggestions for cases that you'd like to hear, you can email us at murderosity at gmail.com. You can also find us on all of the social medias, Twitter, uh, Facebook, Instagram, even TikTok, even though we don't have anything posted to TikTok yet. And maybe a future thing. Yes. A future future service that we provide. I don't know. (laughs) Coming soon to a TikTok near you. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you. And you all stay safe out there.